Welcome to another episode in season five of Planet Possible. We're delighted you're joining us to hear evidence-led discussion about topics that are critical to the way we manage our water and environment. A huge thanks to our season sponsor, Accordion, and you'll hear a little bit more about Accordion later. We're really grateful for their support in bringing the pod to you. If you're new to Planet Possible, I'm Nikki Roach. I'm a passionate advocate for all things water and environment and a fellow of SIWEM, the Chartered Institution of Water and Environmental Management. And SIWEM members in over 90 countries are professionals with a breadth and critically depth of expertise in the topics that are shaping the future of our planet and will be joined by many of them across the season. So let's get today's episode started and we're going to dig into some of the detail of the recent climate COP, COP28, that's just concluded in Dubai in the United Arab Emirates. In recent years, we've seen climate cops in particular making headline news as the climate emergency forms a more regular part of our mainstream media. And if you check out our past episodes, we've covered both COP26 in Glasgow and COP27 in Sharm El Sheikh. 2023 is set to be the hottest year on record. With floods, heatwaves, storms and the temperature running 1.4 degrees C above the pre-industrial average. And sea surface temperatures for the polar oceans reaching the highest on record at almost 21 degrees in October. So today we're going to get behind the headlines and find out what it was like to be at COP28 in person and also reflect on what COP means at a national and a local level. And to help me navigate this topic, I am joined by a fantastic co-host, a commissioner at the Yorkshire and Humber Climate Commission and head of strategic planning at Yorkshire Water, Adam Ashman. Welcome to Planet Possible, Adam. Hi, Nikki. Thanks for having me. So let's get started by understanding a little bit about the Yorkshire and Humber Climate Commission. What's it working towards? I view the the Yorkshire and Humber Climate Commission as a group of really passionate and talented people who care about creating positive outcomes for our region, helping us achieve net zero and then tackling the risks that are associated with climate change. And we do that through uh, something called a place-based climate action network, We know the region we live in, we know the specific challenges that come from being part of Yorkshire and then the opportunities that that brings us as well. And so we work to inform regional and local authorities through to organisations and actual individuals around what's needed to actually adapt and then create a successful future. Well, I'm really keen to explore with you how we translate the kind of international agreements that we hear at the likes of COP into local and national action. But before we get into that, let's hear a little bit more about that international context. So for our main interview, we've been joined by Bushra Hussain, who's the current president of SIWEM. She's a chartered water and environment manager and a chartered engineer and a Dubai municipality approved marine engineer. And she works on really large scale multidisciplinary projects in the Gulf region. And we're also joined by Annie Shepherd OBE. And Annie is the chair of the SIWEM board and until recently, the chief executive of Salix Finance, an organisation that enable public sector organisations to take a lead in tackling climate change through increasing energy efficiency and decarbonising heat. Both Bushra and Annie were in Dubai for COP28, so let's hear their reflections. Tell us how it felt to be part of COP. Maybe Bushra, if we start with you first. COP is arguably the most recognised event in the environmental calendar with representatives from over hundreds of countries from all over the world gathering together to determine the future of our planet. So since the first COP back in 1995 in in Berlin, there have been a a number of landmark agreements coming out of COP, notably the Kyoto Protocol back in 1997. I remember studying this as a student back in the UK. The Kyoto Protocol was a a big event back then and really history in the making. Since then, we've seen a number of other landmark agreements coming out of COP. Uh, We've had the, the Paris Agreement in COP21, 
which uh, superseded the Kyoto Protocol to some extent, which limited global warming to below two degrees. And then more recently, we've had the, the Glasgow Pact of COP26, which further limited heating to 1.5 degrees. So there's so many historic events going on around us. The most recent one, I'd say, would be COP27 in Sharm el-Sheikh when we introduced the uh, loss and damage fund, such an important topic for developing countries and, and those in vulnerable areas. These are all landmark historic treaties. So for me, COP is history in the making, really. And Annie, how about you? Is it your first COP or have you been to plenty of them before? It's my second COP for attending. I was at Glasgow because I was then working with Salix. But of course, it's taken a really different sort of approach for me this time because I'm really here this time as a delegate from SIWEM. And so I've been really concentrating while I've been here, thinking about comments that have been made by lots of the... uh, delegates from the Pacific Islands and their concern about rising sea levels and what it means for them. And really trying to think about how much the issue of water, water management, rising sea levels is playing a part in this COP. Now, I think that this COP has had two issues. One, we've got the methane discussion, which at the last COP, of course, big nations didn't sign. And the second thing is, is that for the first time, there has been this statement around the phasing out of fossil fuels. Now, there was lots of comments from delegates around the place about how serious are the nations on that? Is this just them playing lip service because all the people have got to go back to their nations? And the public understanding of the relationship between fossil fuels, global warming, is becoming much, much more part of local agendas all over the world. And so I think there was a lot of questioning as to just how serious they are. I love thinking about paradoxes because here in Dubai, before I arrived, I was, you know, in order to get to COP, I decided I would hire a car. It's quite difficult to travel everywhere by taxi in and out. So I rang up and tried to hire an electric car because I have an electric car in the UK. I mean, I was laughed at. And what I've been looking at while I've been here, because this is a very much an oil-driven economy in a sense, although, of course, they've they've got the biggest solar farm in the world out in the desert. And there's electricity pylons running through from the desert into the big areas where people are living. There is no places you can charge. There's great paradoxes about this particular COP, about it being in a nation, being in the part of the world where wealth is being created from oil and gas, and this commitment that the world needs to stop using fossil fuels. There's a lot of discussion about how serious are the nations to actually doing that and what are the targets, what, what does this agreement really mean or really hold. And I think the Pacific Island organisations are very sceptical and there also seem to be at this COP a general acceptance that it looks like the Earth is just not going to stay under 1.5. It's just not going to happen. So that, that those were the sorts of discussions that were going on. The most exciting thing, I would say, if people are listening to this podcast, is one of the things that I got that 
was a surprise in a way, and I'm surprised that I was surprised, is that there are people from all over the world, not, not just the politicians and the leaders, but the people who are doing the groundwork, the people who are working with local communities, the people that are promoting alternative fuel sources, the people who are, who are talking about sustainability. And the enthusiasm from all different parts of the world has been a real eye-opener about the amount of energy, real energy, that people are putting in to how do we reduce the human footprint? How do we reduce the carbon emissions? I think that in itself was something that was quite inspiring to know there is real energy across the world. But of course, a lot of that energy is not going to have the impact that we want it to have because the fundamental thing that mankind has got to do is stop using fossil fuels. That is going to be what is going to really, I think, grow in political temperature over the next few years. So Bushra, can I bring you in at this point, if that's okay? Because I'm conscious that you live and work and have done for some time in the UAE. And I think the view that Annie's just reflected is probably reflected certainly in the media here in the UK, which is that paradox of COP being within a fossil fuel state, really fossil fuel economy. What's your take on that as somebody who lives in Dubai? Does that feel like it's a fair representation or did it not feel like that was featured as heavily for you in terms of the narrative? Well, I've actually recently started working in the energy sector only six months ago and I'm witnessing a shift towards greener alternatives to hydrocarbons. The shift away from total reliance on fossil fuels is definitely happening, but the reality is it's just not going to happen overnight. Many of the energy projects I work on as part of my day job have very long-term phasing that go on for decades. So these are mega-scale projects costing billions of dollars. Uh, So yes, the change is coming. I see it in my day job. I see in my day job also that it won't be happening this decade. 2030 isn't going to happen. 2050, it's not going to happen. Is it, this is a, oil and gas projects are, are very long term and you, and you look decades ahead. And if you are going to reduce the hydrocarbon supply, it needs to be matched with an increase in supply of alternatives and also an increase in demand for alternatives because it, it actually goes both ways. It's a very long process and uh, it's unfortunate that we're reaching this point where we're actually reaching a precipice and we're still discussing some of the things that we were discussing three or four decades ago. Do you think, I mean, it sounds like there is a, there is a change, but I mean, to use perhaps a metaphor that's appropriate, it's like turning a tanker, isn't it really? There's obviously a pipeline, oh, again, another, another fossil fuel analogy of projects that are coming. Does it feel like the alternatives are are accelerating though. So Annie talked about, for example, electric cars. That's an interesting one, isn't it? If there's insufficient charging infrastructure, then there's going to be less demand because it feels less feasible to even take that up, for example. So are you finding, I suppose, the narrative and the culture also moving or does it just feel like in an engineering sense, we're maybe doing a little bit of a turn? Like, I guess I'm trying to understand on the ground, does it feel like it's moving faster or is that is that absent in the narrative? It's a slow move. I'm working for some of the big oil companies and 
the moves are very slow because it's the nature of the oil and gas industry or the energy industry, I should say. It requires an incredible amount of infrastructure and we're talking billions and billions of dollars. It's it's a massive investment and you need the infrastructure to support changes. So like Annie said, there are no electric stands to to charge your, your vehicle in Dubai. But in order to do that, you need to have that infrastructure put in place in order to have the supply and demand actually balancing off. It really is a who's going to go first, basically, and who's going to bite the bullet and, and put the infrastructure in place and wait. Nobody wants to do that because it's going to cost billions of dollars. Filling up a car here with your petrol is half the price that it is in the UK for understandable reasons. And one of the things that is really, I think, very interesting is the debate is, is about what's the fair transition from economies. I mean, it's not just... I know we're talking about Dubai, but it's not just Dubai. The economy of the world has been built and based on fossil fuel providing energy to all different parts of the world in different ways. And... The transition to clean power and energy, as Bushra has said, it's expensive, but also the economies of nations will change. And that brings about fears in individuals about employment, about the costs of this transition, taxation, all of these things. You can hear from the political delegates that are there that nations are struggling with how do you begin to put together a fair transition from the economies we have now into the economy of the future. That's one of the big, big discussions that are going on because of course people are worried about what happens if you try to do this and you have great sections of your community then are isolated because they can't access the energy those types of things are the sorts of things that people were talking about and also of course we have very powerful nations who have used fossil fuels to build their economies. And then we have other nations that are now looking how, at how expensive it would be to put in green ways of producing energy when actually coal production is cheap. How do nations then begin to think about where do they get their energy supply from the demands for energy throughout the world are growing, not decreasing. So the sustainability of the alternatives is also the big sort of political debate that's going on. I get the impression from some of the political discussions that have gone on, political leaders across the world are struggling with this. They want to get themselves re-elected and no one's getting re-elected on people are going to lose jobs and we're in a very dynamic situation and what's called for I suppose is international leadership and one of the things that COP's meant to be doing of course is bringing together those international leaders on a common agenda and I'm not absolutely convinced that that common agenda is really got the values and the, the, the determination because 
This is a problematic transition for many, many countries. And look what we're doing. I mean, you know, I don't, I don't want to be um, hypocritical about the nations that have got oil, but even in the UK, we've seen that, you know, licenses are going to be granted for further fields of getting oil and gas out of the North Sea. Now, the impact of that, I, I believe that 200 scientists wrote to the government to say just what the impact would be on climate when those fields start to be developed. And it isn't good. We in the UK are in the midst of knowing our, our society knows a lot about climate change, but our government is selling licenses to exploit more fossil fuels from the North Sea. This season of Planet Possible is sponsored by Accordion. Accordion lets you choose the duration of any piece of video or audio content. Using Accordion, you can change the length of a podcast, keynote speech, training video, or anything else via a slider bar, keeping the essential information you need and losing the detail you don't. Think about how much time that can give back to you, your staff, customers, or audience. Give it a try at accordion.live. And remember, you can listen to every episode of Planet Possible at accordion.live forward slash Planet Possible. So I guess reflecting on what I've heard you both just talk about, and Anna, you started to talk about as an output from COP, you know, an orderly and equitable transition, achieving net zero by 2050. Although, Bushra, you've just talked about the challenges of, of that, particularly in, in the UAE, and that won't won't be alone. Do you feel like the outcomes of the COP were sufficiently significant? Should it have gone further? Or do you get a sense that it was the best that could have been achieved, given the circumstances? Well, as expected, we've talked for the first 20 minutes on fossil fuels and uh, that was the primary focus. They did agree, 200 countries agreed to the first global stock take to enhance climate action within this decade. So that that was a step in the right direction. So the stock take acknowledged the need to reduce global greenhouse gases emissions by 43% by 2030 from 2019 levels to stay within the 1.5 degrees limit and the tripling of renewable energy while doubling the energy efficiency improvements by 2030. A lot of people didn't feel that was enough, but some also recognised that it was the beginning of the end of, of fossil fuels. It probably was a, a step in the right direction, but I think the reality is is something that we just discussed. It's not a, an, easy, an easy transition and a step in the right direction is probably the best that we can expect. But I, I do also want to point out the loss and damage fund. I was very interested to hear about that last year when it was launched at Sham el Sheikh. I have a particular interest in low-lying islands. I, I've lived, I've worked in the marine environment my entire career. And I'm very, very concerned about losing beautiful places on, on our planet. And I was very happy to see that a, a loss and damage fund had been raised, not only to help low-lying islands, but also those in vulnerable areas. And a mere $700 million dollars was pledged. And that's a, a very, very small amount. I mean, it's a drop mm. in the ocean. When you think about some of the damage that happened last year in Pakistan, costs in order of $50 billion worth of damages took place. So 700 million is, is a very, very, very small amount. And it's anticipated that it, it amount is more in the lines of $500 billion that's required to safeguard vulnerable areas. So 
are disappointing in, in that area. We had Sabra Nordine, who was the Maldives part of the UN Climate Assembly, join us on the pod a couple of episodes, a couple of seasons ago, actually. And she articulated really beautifully the challenges that the Maldives are facing and the importance of trying to have their voice heard at COP. Small island nation states just feeling like they were often underrepresented and it was difficult to get the, the voice out there. So again, it sounds like there's it's a step in the right direction with a lot of creation of the fund, but then it's it's just not quite got the teeth that it needs to do what it needs to do. Kind of almost feels like everyone is waiting for somebody else to jump first on a, on a lot of this. Annie, if I come to you for a second, you mentioned at the start you approached this COP thinking about water in particular. Obviously, you're the chair of the SIOM trustee board. And I guess I'm interested in how much water did you hear at COP? We've, As Busher said, we've just spent a good chunk of time talking about fossil fuels, unsurprisingly. But water plays a really critical part in all of the climate change scenarios that we're talking about moving forward. So what, what did you hear? What were some of the themes that came out? Well, of course, one of the things that was discussed is the, the damage in Ukraine to the, the dam. That's one of the things that people were talking about, about the vulnerability of some of the technology when war is created, the impact of war on people. And it's, I mean, we can't get away from it, that that was one of the things that were sort of talked about, not in whispered groups, but in a sort of general concern about what the impact is. And of course, delegates from Africa talking about the, you know, we, we know about two wars where we get lots of publicity, but the civil wars that are going on in Central Africa are, are not getting the same sort of um, national, international attention. And the impact that all of this has on climate, water, access to clean water, when people are in grave need. And that's exactly the same thing that uh, people are talking about when they've had disasters, where they've had flooding, fires, access to water, clean water, is obviously something that was talked about. It's obviously there and it's important. And water and hydro power, of course, is also part of what's seen as a a power resource, what's happening to the seas with using the seas and wind turbines and sea. All of this thing is talked about and there's exhibitions and there are people from the private sector. Interestingly, a lot of the side uh, meetings I went to were talking about the way that industry is using artificial intelligence uh, uh, to really understand what their business is doing and the impact their business is having. And I went to a really interesting discussion that was about how do you create in companies sustainability agendas and how sustainability agendas is much more on the agenda of many big private companies, big consultancies. There's a real sense of seriousness about this. Everyone is taking it seriously. And the one thing I will say about being in Dubai and the way uh, Dubai has put on the conference is the very feeling that you get as you're travelling to it and when you arrive and the posters that is up and the way it's being presented, you feel it's very inclusive, that people from all over the world have come here and been respected and had their 
individual cultures and celebration of the cultures of the world, I thought was very much part of the experience of the Dubai COP. That's wonderful to hear. I mean, I guess it underpins exactly what you talked about around a kind of fair and an equitable transition. Actually, if we really mean that collectively, then we have to be really respectful of where everybody comes from, really. I don't mean the geography of where they come from, but the place they find themselves in in relation to this climate crisis that we find ourselves in. So I'm going to throw a final question at you both. We have a, a magic wand on Planet Possible. It's a lovely way of thinking about if you could make anything possible in this space, what would you want it to be? So Bushra, I'm going to pass you the Planet Possible magic wand first. Wave the wand and tell me what would you like to make possible? I would definitely wish for developed nations and those nations responsible for the climate crisis to open their wallet chakras and be more generous in their pledges to support the loss and damage fund for vulnerable countries. Mm -hmm. That would be my very first and foremost. I was extremely disappointed to see what had happened or what didn't happen. And I think the general consensus is that the world is far away from achieving net zero by 2050. So I would like to see a more aggressive approach to transitioning towards renewables. I'd like to see an end to these wars and understanding that they do nothing for the climate agenda. It makes it worse. If I had a magic wand, I'd want to really think that the next COP brought together a consensus of nations that we are going to take seriously, keeping our word and driving the agenda to stop the use of fossil fuels with renewed energy and commitment that it must happen to save this earth. Okay, Adam, so what are your reflections on what you've heard from Bushra and Annie? Well, yeah, I mean, great interview. I think it's it's fantastic that there's a focal point like COP for discussing the climate crisis and, and you know, that alone is acting as a catalyst for change. I think Bushra identified some of the really significant changes that have been brought about through through the COP process and that's starting to impact the way we live our lives today. I find it quite scary, though, when we hear statements around the energy infrastructure projects not going to be able to deliver till 2030 or 2050, and that there's a delay in transitioning economies away from fossil fuels. I get that change does create uncertainty, and along with that risk, there is opportunity. And hearing what Annie and, and Bushra said, I wonder whether globally we're worried that we're spending too much time protecting interests for today at the expense of, of the future. And that's where I see opportunities for organisations like the Yorkshire and Humber Climate Commission to come in and, and really have that place-based focus on the kind of changes that we need to see happen so that we can uh, yeah, transition away from fossil fuels faster and get ahead of this climate crisis. What does COP28 mean to a place-based climate commission like the Yorkshire and Humber one? I think there's a need for change at all levels and every level simultaneously. I think we've reached a point now where you, you can't wait for change to filter down. I think the scale of the task in front of us is so significant that every level of our society needs to make positive steps. So fantastic to hear great successes that have come over the years through the COP process. That's not actually resulted in a change in carbon emissions as yet so there is still an increase in carbon being emitted into the atmosphere so i think where organizations like the yorkshire and humber climate commission can come in 
is to galvanise communities locally and, and create tailored and specific plans that matter for the regions. You know, we, we have a very different challenge in Yorkshire to other parts of the UK, let alone the world, but we all need a plan and we all need to be able to act. So I think where we can contribute is by, within Yorkshire and within other regions, there are things that we can specifically do, whether that's related to how we use transport, our energy generation, or in our case, a big opportunity for us is the huge volume of land and agriculture sector that we've got and the opportunity that we've got through creating a land use framework, help lock carbon away and contribute to to our region and then our country achieving net zero. So you've touched on some really interesting topics there. And is there more that you need in order to enable some of those actions locally? Did you need more to come out of COP? Do you need more to come out of the government, for example? Or do you have all the tools at your disposal to make that kind of local change happen already? So I I think there's always there's always more support and help that is needed to uh, to bring this about you know we heard earlier that um, that the changes need to happen faster and we heard that some of the targets in terms of 1.5 degrees and, and net zero by 2050 are at risk and you know that's something that we we can't sit silently by and, and let happen we're taking responsibility others are taking responsibility there's always that need for alignment of policy so within the Yorkshire and Humber Climate Commission we have a number of different themes of activity one of those themes and a really complex area that we work on is understanding policy angles and the changes to policy that's needed if you take our use of land as an example you know we've got multiple competing pressures for the Yorkshire countryside whether it's housing whether it's agriculture transportation uh, water you know whether it's production of water for drinking or to provide you know natural flood management all of that takes up space how do we start to understand and layer up those different needs and work out well what is the optimal optimal use for our region i think that's definitely an area that there is competing legislation and we could definitely do with more support in, in that space are there some things that you think well, actually with a little bit of government intervention right now we could we could make a step change so there's a uh, you know the Yorkshire region was due to benefit from the HS2 rail link so I think looking at how our transport sector works both in region and then the local authorities I think understanding how we're going to transport between different regions in future given the changes in the in the strategy around HS2 that could be an area that we look at you know transport in Yorkshire is a, a huge source of our carbon emissions you look at shipping and air travel we need to understand how we adapt to the to the recent change around HS2 so that we can get our transport out of region understood. What's really interesting is to understand at a local level what your sources of carbon emissions are and it sounds like actually that's one of the things that the Climate Commission's got a really good handle on which is in Yorkshire where do we need to dial up or dial down what we're doing? Do you work with individuals as well and community groups or are you working with organisations? How does it work as a climate action network? As a body, so yeah, the people like myself are involved, so reps from industry. So like you said, my day job, I work for Yorkshire Water. But you've got um, people from our university sector, so Leeds University, there's the Environment Agency, all the local authorities and combined authorities. You've got different charities are involved, the housing sector, the national parks agriculture the transport sector it's a real diverse group and and blend so we actually had our our all commissioners meeting in leeds back in the summer big room full of people and it's fantastic to see you know all those motivated people turning up to focus on this 
I've got the climate action plan, that data-led view of where are the sources are of our emissions and then um, how do we understand those pathways over, over the future towards our goal of being net zero. Once you understand where your sources of emissions are, you can really target how you're going to reduce those further. Every organisation and, and, and group is, is developing their, their net zero transition plans. The risk is how you keep those transition plans locked firmly in your sites as it turns from a plan to actually deploying it. That's obviously when the hard work starts. I guess it would be all too easy to defer or delay some of those transition plans. Just reflecting back on some of what was said on the interview, I think that that's a huge risk. You know, if everyone took that decision to delay their transition plan slightly, we're obviously uh, at even greater risk of missing the objective here, which is to limit the warming of the planet and limit the impact of the climate crisis. So I think leaders and, and groups like ours, for everyone's sake really, we need to, to hold people to account and we need to make sure that, pe- that we do as individuals, as organisations, stick to those transition plans and collectively get over the line. Just a final question before I give you the magic wand. Just something that was occurring to me when I was listening to Bushra and Annie was one of the outputs of COP is about it being a fair and equitable transition. That's absolutely critical, isn't it? Because you've got to take everybody with you, not just those who can afford to transition. So that's interesting internationally. Are you thinking about that in Yorkshire? Does that form part of your conversations? And, and if so, what does that look and feel like? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think that's probably one of the key elements it's globally it exists you've got nations that haven't created the climate crisis but they're some of the first to suffer from it and it's exactly the same in Yorkshire you know we've got a real demographic of people and uh, and of affordability that tension is held in the climate commission you know we hear from different sectors from housing association type sectors who, who are dealing with those challenges day in day out around how do we protect people from high energy bills and insulate homes and we absolutely have a view on you know how do you deliver this in a fair and equitable way there has to be an opportunity for our region in particular through adapting to uh, climate change and delivering net zero and I see that as the uh, the green jobs economy you know I see this yes there's a threat we're dealing with but we can turn that into an advantage and we can look at what are the green jobs that we'll create within our region within Yorkshire to help individuals and organisations prosper going forward. I'm absolutely uh, determined that we'll see that through our region play out. To steal an example from uh, Yorkshire Water, you know, we're implementing nature-based solutions. Uh, Instead of using grey infrastructure, we're using nature to do the treatment or slow the flow during storm events. That's a really different type of solution to build but it also needs a different kind of skill to maintain it and look after it. That's a, a fantastic opportunity for, for economic development and, and, and jobs for, for people long into the future. As well as massively reducing the amount of carbon of some of those solutions and pouring a lot less concrete. Love it. Right, so final question, Adam, in that case then. You knew it was coming. I'm going to pass you, like I did with Annie and Bushra, the Planet Possible magic wand. Give it a wave and tell me what you'd like to make possible. I'm going to go back to something that was talked about uh, by Bushra and Annie. I think I would ask for the acceleration of the decarbonisation of fossil fuels. In the context of this discussion, I think that's absolutely critical. It is going to happen. We need it to happen faster. The sooner that societies, economies decarbonise and get clean, green energy, I think the better. Economies and societies that don't, I think, will end up being the ones that stand out and the ones that become the dinosaurs and are left behind. 
And I think that's where, you know, we all have to step up and hold each other accountable and make sure that that, that happens. So, yeah, that's what I'd wave the magic wand at today. Thank you. I mean, I guess from listening to your thoughts and certainly Bushra and Annie's, the importance of equity and an equitable transition and Bushra talked about the loss and damage fund feels like a really big theme that's come out. There's definitely that theme of pace and actually Bush, we talked about aggression. We can't be passive. And I think finally picking up on your point at the end, I loved that piece around the opportunity that comes from this. There's a huge amount of, you know, quite negative, quite understandable news around some of this stuff, but there are some chinks of opportunity for individuals actually and and for communities and organisations. Adam, thank you so much. As ever, time has flown by. We're at the end of another episode, but a huge thanks to you for joining us. I really hope you found the conversation insightful. I hope it's giving you something to think about in your world. You can subscribe to Planet Possible on your usual podcast player to never miss an episode. And as ever, we'd love to hear your ratings and reviews too. This is the final episode for 2023. So I wanted to thank you for joining us and continuing to support Planet Possible. We are looking forward to bringing you an amazing lineup of guests and some really critical topics in 2024. So I hope you'll continue to join us for those. All that leaves me to say is a huge thank you to my guests today, Bushra Hussain, Annie Shepherd, and of course, my co-host, Adam Ashman. Thank you, Adam. Thank you. That's it, everyone. Stay safe and we'll see you next time. Planet Possible is produced by Bulb. B-W-L-B Bulb. The best ideas, the strongest content.